Welcome to episode 72 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Bryn Jackson. This episode, we hung out with Morgan Knudsen. He is the head of design at Shift, and previously he worked at Dropbox and then at Google before that. It was a great conversation, but before we get into it, we want to quickly thank our two sponsors that made this episode possible. First, Icon Finder. Back again. They are the largest source of premium icons on the web. Over 650,000 icons in their library, growing every single month. Uh, They're on track for a million by next year, which is just insane. So for any design project you're working on, if you need icons, go to iconfinder.com. They have icons in all different styles, shapes, variations, uh, comes in all file types, PNGs, JPGs. They have SVG icons. They're going to work in any software you're using, whether that's Photoshop, Sketch, or Illustrator. If you're an icon designer, you can also sell your icons on Icon Finder. Some designers are making four to $5,000 a month. So definitely submit your icons if you are a designer. If you just need to use them, go on iconfinder.com. Sign up for Icon Finder Pro. It's a premium subscription service. If you use the promo code design details, that'll tell them that we sent you and get you 50% off your first month. Thank you so much once again to Icon Finder. Second, another oldie but a goodie, Dropbox. They are one of our favorite services in the world. They make all of this spec podcast stuff possible. They make all our other projects possible too, which is pretty rad. They keep all your files in sync across all your computers, across partners, across all your friends, across your family, across companies. They do a phenomenal job of syncing everything consistently, concisely, keeping it in the cloud, keeping it backed up, keeping previous versions, giving you all the things you need to get your stuff done with a team or by yourself or with whoever. We really appreciate Dropbox sponsoring the show. They've been huge supporters of us and it's been incredibly helpful. They've got Mailbox for your email. They've got Carousel for your photos. And now they just released Dropbox Paper for your collaborative notes, which is awesome. You can even embed sketch files in it, which is insanely dope. So we can't thank them enough. Thank you one more time to Dropbox. Go check them out at dropbox.com. And with that, let's get into episode 72 with Morgan Knudsen. My name is Morgan Knudsen, and I'm a designer. Well stated. Mm. Simple. I like it. What are you working on? All sorts of things. A business. So, you know, the software product Mm -hmm. behind it, but also... Which product is that? All sorts of different ones that enable a complex operational business. Um, called in, internal tools. <laughs> uh, it's called shift. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I, yeah. I didn't catch what you were alluding at there that whole time. Yeah. You co-founded a company called shift. Yes. Tell us about it. We are trying to make the whole car thing easier. So from buying a car to owning it and then selling it when you're done. Doing a pretty good job with buying and selling right now. If you're uh, selling a car, we can pick it up from you, and then we sell it, and you cast a check. And if you're interested in buying one of the cars that we have, we we bring it to your house or your office or wherever for a test drive. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're in SF, you can actually get a test drive delivered within 45 minutes. That's sweet. If the car's available. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. So if you like, really want to buy it, you can have it in your <laughs> at your house within under an hour. Yeah. And it was you and four other co-founders. Yes. Are you the only designer among the founders? Yes. Okay. What is your role as the designer co-founder? Everything that is under the umbrella of design. Makes sense. <laughs> Why this problem? Why is this something you wanted to work on? I was actually going to work on how crummy payments is. Um, obviously, Apple's in payments now i wanted to realize the future of no more paper receipts and not having to expense things had all sorts of interesting ideas around it and was going to start a company with my my good buddy mark who i worked with at dropbox and uh i had spoken to a number of ceos for i don't know about a year and they were all sort of full of shit and had really bad ideas and uh i met george who uh, is the original founder of the company when he was recruiting a founding team. He wasn't uh, bullshitting me off the bat (laughs) like everybody else was. And the idea seemed really interesting to work on. It's much different than many of the other things that I've done in my career. It's much more tangible, right? It's not a a social network that uh, 
you sort of have to really pay attention to like Google behavioral Plus. data. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I worked on, you know, radical liberal activism, like hacktivist campaigns for mm-hmm. many, many years before uh, coming up here to the Bay Area. Really amorphous things that, you know, sort of take a lot of, <laughs> a lot of uh, deep thinking about the problems. Um, where this is something that's a little more obvious. It's more like these things have to get done. And how do we think about and solve this in a way that gets the highest quality out of uh, the least amount of effort? So you can do it at scale. There's talk about design-led companies. Mm -hmm. Whether you buy into that or not, I'm curious, from your perspective as a design co-founder, like what role does design play in shift for something that is so tangible, uh, maybe a little more obvious? Like, Why is design important to to the problems you're solving? For us, um, we're trying to change like a fundamentally hated business, which is used cars. Yeah. You think of the most sleazy businessman out there and it's a car salesman. So why is design important to this problem? Well, trust is extremely important to the success of this business. And so I think, you know, design at its heart is like it has to be genuine or else it doesn't work. It doesn't have the sort of reliability and and trust of, of, of the people that are using it. So, I mean, design plays into shift in many different ways, not just trust, but uh, like I said, uh, being able to provide like a really high quality and valuable experience at a low cost and at scale mm-hmm. is extremely important for, for us. You look at every, every used car site out there, like Car Gurus, uh, Auto Trader, Cars.com, <laughs> uh, just Craigslist, right? Bring a trailer. Um, r- right. right. <laughs> yeah. That's that my one. favorite one. That's Gentry's company, right? Or no? Bring a trailer? Right. I think it's like super old. Mm. Right, it's it's for like vintage cars or performance cars from like back in the day. Even that site, like every every used car site out there has a you know photograph of a car in a driveway above an oil slick, you know, with like a screen door with holes in it in the background, right? Like it's in somebody's like horrible driveway or in front of some you know shoddy apartment. I mean, you can't really sort of get a real sense for like the car because it's framed in this environment that um, is not pleasing. You know, one big thing that we do is we built our own car photo studio and it's super DIY and we shoot out of all of our cars uh, in the studio and we've developed a process that takes little time and we continue to iterate on it. So that way, as we flow into other markets, we have a really sort of cost effective and um, efficient way to do it. One major difference is you can actually like see the car and you can see all the details and we, we even um, take wear and tear photos. So, like, we capture every little detail of the car that may not be pristine and try to provide, like, the most complete picture that we can, which is totally... So, purely honesty. Like, it's very focused on that. Absolutely. I can see that increasing trust, but do you think that decreases the number of people that want to buy on your site just because the defects are so visible? That's a great question. Um, We don't take cars that are really horrible, right? So, these defects are all little scuffs or little tiny dings. And we also take care of a lot of the cosmetic damage. We're actually really under promising and over delivering when people get a test drive delivered to their house um, we've heard this on multiple occasions where a person is actually expecting there to be all this damage on the car right because there were four or five pictures of little scratches um, and they get it and they're like wow i don't even see anything right this mm-hmm. thing's pristine mm-hmm. and then they want to buy the car it's kind of like uh, on a dating site where if uh you know you portray yourself as as you know uh something <laughs> much more than you are, and then you sort of arrive at that date, uh, you've really disappointed the person, right? <laughs> yeah. But the other way around, right? Like, that's a different experience. Uh, if you've undersold yourself and then you show up on this date, the person's going to be pretty, like, you know, they're, they're going to be into it, right? Because they're like, wow, like, I'm, not, I'm not disappointed. Um, Tender for buying used cars is what you're suggesting. No, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be pretty efficient. Sleep pretty on easy. it. Sleep on it. I like this idea. I mean, we've thought about it, and <laughs> a lot of people have said literally the same thing to us. Like, have you thought about using Tinder's UI? How many are on your team now? Which part of the team? Your design team. There's six of us. How long has Shift been around? Since uh, the beginning of 2014. That's awesome. Yeah. And you've hired the other five or the other six? Yeah, five. How's that going? Are you still hiring, or do you feel like you're at a point where your design needs are being solved? 
Uh, we are hiring for product designers and a senior communications designer. We need to hire many more engineers, though. We need lots of engineers. Because, I mean, there's six, there's six of us already, so we're doing a lot of work. And how many engineers? Uh, I think we're at, like, 14 or 15. Whoa. 14 Crazy. Engineers. That is a really high design-to-developer ratio. Yeah. I'm 14 to 1 right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's nuts. It's cool, right? Do you I, guys, I mean, I need more designers. But <laughs> yeah. How do you think about ratios like that? Do you pay attention to that number at all? Or is it just, just raw, like, we just need help, more help? Um, definitely pay attention to the number. We have thoughts about, you know, sort of sending the wrong signal to engineers with too large of a design team. Like, there's too much to do or, <laughs> like, too much to build because <laughs> the design team is, you know, making too many things. But, um, no, I think there, you know, there needs to be more engineers than designers for sure. I mean, you know, it's not something I'm, like, thinking a ton about, but... You know, I'm not hiring somebody tomorrow. <laughs> I'm like being pretty, you know, um, delicious. Yeah. So how do you approach the people you hire? Like what, what are the things you really look for? Uh, I, I need a high output. Like I need a high GTD score, essentially. Um, GTD meaning getting things done? Yeah. Yeah. Output is really important. Um, and, uh, you know, people talk about being generalists and whatnot. I think it's more about, you know, like you, you don't have to be a master of a number of different skills, but you have to be sort of um, diligent and driven enough to go after new challenges and, you know, succeed at them. That sort of like raw ability to just want to take things on um, is something that spikes really, really high for me. How do you uh, gauge that up front, though? Uh, you know, by the things that pe- I mean, the things that, pe- that people are doing. Like, look at you guys. You're sitting here like recording a design podcast on your own time constantly, right? Like that's a very good indication that like you guys are doing something that is, you know, highly creative and polished and, uh, and you're continuing to do it, right? Polished. <laughs> but that's just an example. One of the people I hired at Dropbox where I fought very, very hard uh, to get him on the team was Dan Eden. Um, and up until Dan, we only hired people who had like proven track records at whatever companies. But Dan was doing things on his own regardless of where he was. He was designing and building and shipping products that had, you know, people paying for them. And to me, it's like, okay, ding, 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 right? Like, we got to hire this guy. Perfect. <laughs> for me, I, I look for, you know, high output, high quality um, of course there's, you know, you don't want to work with jerks. Um, so like, you know, cool, cool people <laughs> that matters too. Nice people. So um, you definitely regret hiring Marshall Bach. At He's Google? Um, such a dick. Marshall's oh. one of the best guys ever. I know. <laughs> in the whole world. I'm so happy for his success at Google. He's really killing it. Maybe uh, that's a good, a good break to actually just start kind of at the beginning. Cause you do have an interesting sort of career path if you want to call it that from nonprofits to huge social networks to dropbox and now you worked on miro back in the day too right yeah yeah i i helped start miro Um, that's crazy i remember using that like so intensely for a while like i was so big into it no way wait can you guys explain no way it's a browser for video playing it used to actually be a hack of Firefox that was two browser windows stuck together and all the UI was HTML, CSS. So it's funny that you called it a browser. It wasn't, it took, it wasn't until like version three or four when we like went fully native. But yeah, that was, yeah, that was one of... I just thought it was so cool back in the day. Like that's the, awesome. And that's most of what I use my computer for is video playing, right? Miro aimed to be the open source TiVo of your computer. So leveraging RSS feeds uh, and BitTorrent for distribution. We also made a little app that allowed people to create these little sort of channels. Uh, it was called Broadcast Machine. And so you would, you know, just upload videos from whatever and wherever, and you could create a ongoing series, podcast, you know. But then it leveraged BitTorrent to distribute all this stuff. So there's no cost, in, which doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> there's like no cost in bandwidth or storage anymore uh, so it's like a it doesn't really matter but yeah it was really convenient for sort of having a list of things you cared about and then having it clean up your hard drive when you watched them and all that kind of stuff yeah um miro was one of a handful 
of projects. To answer your question, I started uh, on the web when I was a young kid. You know, we got internet in the mall. We ended up with Prodigy from from a mall kiosk on a Pentium One, um, <laughs> our second computer. And uh, I used to, you know, futz around in Paintbrush and and you know tried to recreate all sorts of icons that were in Windows 3.1 and the things I was most successful at were like redrawing the scroll bars like in the canvas right next to the scroll bars in, <laughs> in paintbrush because um, it's like checkered patterns mm-hmm. it was basically just pixel art so that's when I became a graphics designer <laughs> uh, with an x and um <laughs> uh, because it was the 90s guy right 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 um, and I had been involved in like art classes all, all my life in elementary school and middle school. And I had AP oil painting in high school. Oh, there you go. Kind of weird, but I didn't know there was that. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know that could be an AP class. Yeah. I went to a really shitty school, but they had an AP oil painting class. It was really weird. <laughs> it was really weird. I jumped on it though. But yeah, I started on like GeoCities, you know, Angel Fire. You remember Angel Fire? I started there. And then I, I started playing in bands when I was like 14, you know, designing flyers for shows designing you know bullshit album covers yes kind of stuff um sort of taught me photoshop uh that's exactly what got me into it so and, and so then designing websites for for my band and mm-hmm. fred's bands mm-hmm. uh you know taught me the ins and outs of uh css and html it was tables it was tables back mm-hmm. then so i decided to go to school for it um but before that i uh stumbled a Upon this website called downhillbattle.org. And um, their whole uh, mission was to lift up independent music artists and to try to push down the major music industry, which sounds ridiculous, but it was super punk rock. Oh, and I got involved with them because I had just stumbled upon this website and they had like a little blurb in the corner that said, We're looking for a designer. And I was like, I'm trying to be a designer. <laughs> and like, here's my sandbox website where, you know, I fiddled with my name for 30 days, <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. like, you know, messed around with a logo for way longer than I should have. And, you know, look, here's this like flash, like snowing thing that I put in there. It's look, it's snowing. It's Christmas time. It's snowing. Um, <laughs> that was the type of really dumb things that I was doing on the web. Marquee. Um, this was more advanced than the marquee tag. This was much more advanced. This is like. You know, this is dynamic snow that we're talking about here. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Action script. So I got involved with them by just sending them like an email and they were like, you're perfect. Um, so uh, we did all sorts of really crazy things. Um, How old were you at this point? I was like 18. So still in school. This is like a evenings. I, had, I hadn't even started school yet. Actually. Oh, this is in between. This was like, this is just me hanging out. Okay. And then, like, at my computer all day, uh, messing around. Messing around. <laughs> uh, with websites, Bryn. <laughs> with Not websites. Videos. No, I wasn't doubting that. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, no, yeah. So I just sent them an email, and um, they hired me. And they were based out of Worcester, Massachusetts. Was that the easiest job hire you've ever gone through? Yeah. Yeah, probably. One email? Well, it wasn't just one. It was a threat. There was a threat. Okay. They like wanted to see my work and, okay. you know, wanted to know some other things. If I was a felon or something, I don't know. You know there's a threat. Worth checking for an 18-year-old, yeah. Oh, actually, I'm curious. Did you tell them your age at the time? Uh, n- no. I mean, I Did think they, they ever know how old you were? Yeah. They found out. Well, I think, I mean, they see your birthday when they yeah. Oh, yeah, if you're doing start paying W4, you. yeah. Okay. So it's against the law to ask people's age, though, when you're interviewing mm-hmm. them. All right, jeez. I was curious, <laughs> man. <laughs> sometimes that's a thing people like want to keep that secret Mm. when they're young no i mean you could tell that i was young uh because i was young (laughs) (laughs) you didn't have this beard well i mean all the correspondence was email but we did a crazy thing we did a lot of crazy things though like uh it was all around sort of copyright stuff and so one thing was um like a campaign uh when itunes first came out because they were paying artists like nothing on the dollar uh Per song was it seventy thirty? I think it was much less. Hmm. It was much less at the time. Yeah, it was something like three cents. <laughs> you know, like interesting. Yeah, it was. It was kind of ridiculous. Um, so we made like this parody website and got a cease and desist and all that kind of stuff. And there was uh, there's some other crazy projects too, like uh, going into Target and Walmart on Black Friday 
and bringing with these big red stickers that said warning this artist makes you know five cents off of this cd sale and then sticking them all over all the cds in walmart and target on black friday <laughs> so everybody shopping could could see that they were not contributing to the pockets of the artists that they were listening to so you know borderline criminal stuff like that but uh, <laughs> i think that is criminal actually yep um <laughs> It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Uh, but uh became much more serious and started working on software like this uh, anonymous uh, ad hoc chat like web app uh, that we called Conversate at the time. It's it like 12 years ago, 13 years ago or something like that. So you could like, you know, just spin up an ad hoc conversation anonymously and, uh, you know, be able to trade secrets with people and stuff. <laughs> the chat roulette without video. Yeah, yeah, sort of, but more, you know, purposeful. You can actually, you know, share a link with somebody and, mm -hmm. you know, okay. send, send it to somebody. But Interesting. But then we split up and became much more focused. Uh, the single organization split into two, um, not like, you know, over anything, but it was on purpose. One was, uh, one became the Participatory Politics Foundation and the other became the Participatory Culture Foundation. And so the culture side focused on, uh, copyright issues, um, other sort of social awareness issues. And the political side, of course, focused on politics. On that side, we built a site called opencongress.org, which is still around. Uh, it got acquired by the Sunlight Foundation, who were the uh, major funder of the project. It uh, allows you to track your legislators, um, your reps or your senators, as well as the legislation that they create, as well as the lobbying money uh, that they get paid um, so you can directly see how, you know, the Koch brothers' money influences, like, the laws that you have to abide by. Um, and then it enables you to, you know, form groups and click a couple buttons and send emails about the stuff you don't like. <laughs> like, you can tap a few buttons and, like, insert parts of bills into emails and then send them off to the senator and say that you don't like how, you know, this line takes away your guns or whatever. <laughs> um, but it was, uh, it's really cool. It uh, helped a lot of people understand the um, Affordable Care Act. We got like, I don't know, hundreds. No, there's, I think, millions, actually, um, of hits at that time, which was huge for us because it was more like hundreds of thousands of people. And, you know, we weren't hitting crazy numbers at the time because not, not a lot of people care about politics, and that was, the whole, that was the whole reason to do it. But, yeah, there was a – you could comment on parts of the bill. So if there was a particular line that was egregious or whatever, uh, there would be, you know – a long thread of people commenting about it and debating and arguing and calling each other's name or each other names and stuff. That's awesome. It sounds like what genius is trying to do now. Mm. Genius.com. I don't know about it. It was a uh, rap genius. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And then they just became genius and they want to mm. annotate everything. And that sounds like the right. predecessor, right? Like here's, here's this public document. Let's, are they doing bills? They're doing everything. Everything. Like anything no that's on the web, they're trying to annotate. Books. I think they do laws now. They have like legal genius. Interesting. Yeah, bills are in a really antiquated website. And they're in like really difficult to OCR PDFs. And you have to basically like scrape the Library of Thomas. Um, which is Or Thomas, the Library of Congress, I mean. <laughs> uh, it's called Thomas. I don't know why, actually. But um, it's like really hard to get that data. And so we had to like... Scrape the hell out of it and then parse it and make it human readable and mm -hmm. add functionality that made sense. But yeah, the other thing was Miro on the culture side. We did some other stuff on the culture side too, like uh, uh, universal subtitles, which is called Amara subtitles, which is actually how you can get a Vimeo video translated or transcribed. So it's actually a, you know, most of the videos on the internet over the last, you know, decade or whatever um, have been in English. So kind of cancels out people who don't speak English um, or people who can't hear. So we recognized this problem and we wanted to do something to solve it. So we built this, like, uh, you basically just throw a JavaScript tag into your site and then it finds an embedded video and then throws, like, a little button right at the bottom of it, uh, which launches a whole UI, um, which allows you to transcribe the video. So it does things like, you know, pauses after eight seconds if it detects that you're typing, or three seconds if it detects that you're still typing, um, gives you a bunch of shortcuts to sort of like go back a few seconds and um, and then gives you this visual way to sort of drag your captions uh, to exactly the right moment, right? So you go through and just type them all very quickly and then you watch the video again and you sort of just drag things to the right moment as you're watching it. So it takes about like 
you know, maybe twice the amount of time to watch the video to actually transcribe it. Um, cause you actually have to watch the video, but you can speed it up too. So yeah. Does this still exist? Yeah. They actually just struck a deal with Vimeo. And so oh, wow. it's how you can get your video translated on Vimeo. Oh, it's the official way. Yeah. You oh. can like pay a fee or you can like use the, you know, the app to, mm-hmm. to do it yourself or something. Crazy. Like that. Yeah. Okay. It's pretty cool. Through all of that stuff, that was while you were, you went to design school. I did go to design school. Yeah. And it, you were I working dropped. on these projects there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I dropped out because I was I was already working. Right. And I didn't have any time to do remedial homework and all that kind of stuff. So Do you feel like that was worth your time? Going to school? Yeah. No. No. No, not at all. Nope. <laughs> nope. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> How long did it take for you to drop out? Uh it was like a year and a half. Almost two years. Did you learn anything that you still reflect on? Or I mean, you learn, you learn things every day, right? But um, like anything of value that you were putting to use while you're shipping actual products? Uh, I had, there was a, there was a coding class. It was, okay. it was, it was a, it was a MySQL class. <laughs> um, and it taught me some, you know, basic understanding of you know, databases and how to query them. <laughs> um, but, uh, I had already sort of, you know, I had already read like Zeldman's book. I had already read a number of web standards books that were all the rage, you know, a long time ago. So I was already pretty proficient there. And unfortunately, the school just didn't offer what I really wanted. I should have, you know, went for a computer science degree, uh, but I'm not smart enough for that. So So uh, you dropped out. Yeah. Why do you say you should have gone for a computer science degree? They just would have been more beneficial. Why is that? Like, what what do you see as being the most beneficial part? We get this question a lot. Like, if I want to be both a designer and developer, should I go for a computer science degree and learn design on the side? Or should I, like, go for a design degree and learn, like, programming on the side? That's a really difficult question. It's a really difficult question. Oh, I'm aware. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I would say that you want to learn everything you can about design and engineering because that's what it takes to build software. Like, if what you want to do is build software, then you should learn both. Um, and how to do it, I don't know. Uh, I know there's some colleges out there that are different and focus on, you know, building products and the engineering behind it, which, you know, often involves a lot of design. A friend of mine, Mikey Lentz, went to a college called Olin, and it's the only reason I know about it. And apparently that's what they do. It's not your sort of average uh, computer science degree. Um, you go there and build things. And honestly, I am not like the person to be talking about schools or like how to how to uh, uh, gain a proper education. Um, but because uh, I've always learned from experience um, mm-hmm. and it's always been the way that I could learn best is is by doing. Um, and so honestly, I don't know how else to answer that question other than um, or answer that question other than uh, that they're both extremely important. I'd say that I've talked to a lot of people that got an HCI degree and wish they understood fundamentals of design better. I've talked to people who, you know, have gotten engineering degrees and wish, wish they understood, uh, you know, human-computer inter- interaction and, and the fundamentals of design. I don't, really, I don't really know how to answer that question because I don't know, like, where to get that education other than, yeah. Through experience? Yeah, totally agree. So at what point along this road you're, you've dropped out your shipping products? At what point along this road did... Google happen. Right. So I worked with Downhill Battle, as I mentioned, and um, uh, it was a nonprofit. And, you know, I was sort of stuck in my bedroom doing, you know, all of the design work with no one else around me. Um, And so I really wanted to work with some other people. So I went to a little agency uh, that was like in the town over from where I lived. And there were like three people there and it was run by just a, a dude, just a cool dude who started it. <laughs> it's just like a, your classic sort of like old school web development shop, you know? And there I, uh, you know, needed to sort of handle the sort of client relation, like always be sort of working with, uh, the person who hired us to build out whatever they needed and needed to develop and design the thing. And we had like one programmer from India who was horrible so that was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> uh, that, you know, was fine. But uh, I really missed doing stuff that mattered. And not just sort of, you know, essentially just doing client work for somebody else, right? Um, it's like, you know, freelancing, essentially. It was exactly like freelancing, but getting paid like minimum wage. Um, <laughs> I went back 
uh, and was the only designer working for both organizations on all the different projects that were happening, um, which is sort of exactly like where I like to be, <laughs> like working on a ton of different things. And so that's, you know, that's when we sort of continue to build out Open Congress and, you know, ship the new version of Miro that wasn't super clowny. Um, <laughs> it wasn't two Firefox windows stuck together. And so I did that for another, you know, three years or something like that. Um, I had a good time. was back in my bedroom. And then I got married and we decided to have a baby. And I was getting a little sort of a little bit of attention, you know, fielding recruiter emails like we all do and started to take them a little more serious since I wanted to start a family and then got a recruiter email from Google and a number of other places. And so I was just interviewing all over the place, really. And Google's interview process took like three months. Uh, it was crazy. And uh, it was just taking too long. So I accepted an, an offer at a little startup uh, that was in Cupertino. And they were doing... It was horrible. They were, <laughs> they were, uh, they were trying to develop a, a news service slash app or you know, suite of apps uh, that would not have a bunch of advertising in them and, you know, be a beautiful news reading experience. But the engineering team was like not capable enough <laughs> of uh, designing things. And it was like an ex PayPal guy uh, who was cool, but uh, they spent a lot of money on the content. So like paying the New York times and paying, you know, every, every newspaper, essentially we had almost every newspaper. Boston Globe, Chicago Tribune, right? Like every every newspaper. And so it was extremely expensive. And I got the job at Google like two months in. And I had... Uh, two months in? Then you finally heard back from Google? Yeah. And I had just redesigned like all of their marketing and the product. I had just redesigned their iOS app and the web app and all the marketing. They were cool with that. Like didn't make me pay back any signing bonus or anything like that because I had done a ton of work. But yeah, then I went to Google. Do you want do you want to share about your time at Google? Yeah, it was all right. Um, <laughs> I uh, so um, when I spoke to the recruiter, they told me I was uh, a very nice guy, Andrew Chen. He or Chen, he uh, told me I was interviewing for the Chrome team, and I was so stoked to to work on Chrome. And went through the interview, um, met a bunch of really cool people that I really liked a lot. One of them, his name is Peter Jin Hong. And the other is Charles Warren. But I got there on the first day and along with like the other hundred people that were starting that day or whatever, you know, sat down at my my table and uh, found out I was going to be at the Google on the Google Plus team. And uh, my only was Google Plus a thing at that point. Yeah, they had just launched and. It was such a thing that they had like one of the highest budgets at the company um, and we're in like the main building and, you know, we're... I've heard Vic was good at getting resources. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Yeah, so I started on the first day and they told me I was going to Google Plus and uh, my consolation there was that um, uh, two of the people I had interviewed with were on that team. One of them was going to be my manager and he wanted me to be on their team and that's why I was there and he was a really cool guy and he was super you know a really good design manager in the sense that he would go around and pump everybody up and inspire everybody you know tell people if you like their work or not but also really pump everybody up which is exactly what I think a design manager should do is like you know all the, all the important stuff provide direction and you know try to maintain quality and and you know people management, all that kind of stuff. But like, like amping people up so they do their best work is like one of the best things you can do as a design manager. So, uh, and I was working with this other guy, Peter, um, who was really cool. And yeah, so I started on the photos team there, uh, helped to redesign the like light box. It's like on the photos team, you know, working on the light box. You sound so disappointed. I think photos is probably one of the best products that's come out of that, right? Like Google plus photos evolved into over time evolved into what is now. Well, I'm not disappointed. Not disappointed. You sound... Um, It was photos before it was Google Plus photos. And then it was again photos. (laughs) It went through the cycle. It... So you're right about Vic being able to sort of get resources. The project had really sort of like engulfed everything. Um, 
and it kind of made sense after working on the photos team i you know went home in december uh on vacation everybody's on vacation and I had all these ideas about you know people were working on different aspects of what could be like a redesign um there were some folks working on like the sidebar and some folks working on the stream and all sorts of different aspects and you know, I, I love to sort of think about things holistically and kind of take a step back and, you know, think about you know, what is it exactly that we're trying to do here. And the way they pitched it, you know, in reality, the thing was uh, was a half-assed competitor to Facebook, right? Um, but the way that they explained it around Google is that it was a social layer to Google, right? Like trying to leverage the massive amounts of data that you would gather by, you know, having people live their lives on your product by being google right um so uh did you did you buy into that vision well you know um you, you always drink the kool-aid right yeah like, of course if you're gonna go work somewhere from day one you're gonna try to you know understand why and and do your best to do the right thing right you know i had i had high hopes for what we we could achieve so I, w- I saw all sorts of different little things happening and, and I, I went home and sort of, you know, I actually stuck to my, my laptop during the entire like Christmas vacation from Hanukkah to January, really. Uh, I was just on my laptop and I uh, sort of had these little ideas about how to kind of integrate, you know, Google's top bar, which they call the sandbar into Google Plus's navigation and try to like actually have some logic for why the shit was there. And then also pave a way to get every Google product into the same place, right? Because why, why can't you like, you know, at the time, why couldn't you sort of read your mom's update and chat with your friend to the right of that and then really quickly look at your calendar and still be back in the context that you were in? And, you know, sort of, mapped out a bit of this vision and then worked with uh, some of the prototypers on the um, UXE team, which, uh, by the way, Andy Hertzfeld was leading. And so it was incredible to be working with him and, and him. Um, he, he spent like, it was something like two or three days working on one aspect of that redesign, which was, you know, there's a triangle, like a little carrot called it a beak at the time that would point to the navigational item that you're on, which were these like icons essentially. And it was a vertical navigation on the left. And so if you tapped the search bar at the very top of the screen, that carrot that was pointing to the left would zoom up and go around this little corner that the content had. And so it would actually follow that corner and settle underneath the search bar. And he spent like two days getting that thing to be perfect. He like wrote it in canvas it's unbelievable. Uh, it was a pleasure working with uh, somebody like that, um, who takes that much, you know, you know care um, and attention uh, to, to the things that they're building. But I worked with that team, and uh, one of the prototypers spent a lot of time on the prototype, and like two or three weeks later, had this like fully working prototype where you could add in like your Google Plus hash. There was a number that you got, um, so you could just type that in in the in uh, the address field and um, basically use this prototype with all of your current data, um, which is like the only reason that we built this thing, right? Cause it was like, Oh cool. This is amazing. Let's do it. <laughs> right. Like without like sort of actually seeing it, I don't think it, um, you know, ever would have happened, but yeah. So I did a lot of running, running around, um, like lots of pieces of the project were sort of divvied up to different members of the team. And I just did a lot of running around sort of helping with details and all sorts of different things. At one point I was, sitting next to a backend engineer that had been put on the product or put on the project and was trying to write CSS. He, he didn't really know what to do. Um, so sitting there like writing CSS and then I aming it to him. Uh, Cause I didn't want to spend the time to like get into the environment and actually like check the code in myself. It was just much easier to just like sit, sit on a stool next to him and just I am in the code. Um, Man, it was a lot of fun working on that. Yeah, that sounds uh, like a really fun time, honestly, to me. It was fun. Especially on such a big scale. It was yeah. fun. I ended, so I ended up being sort of really unhappy because I had a manager uh, who seemingly did just did not want to work with me. So this was after Charles? So Charles mentored a guy um, who then replaced him. Uh, it was all like rainbows and cupcakes when, when Charles was around. But uh, uh, this other guy didn't like my style or whatever. I don't know. 
but uh, I ended up actually deciding to sort of interview at other teams at Google and interviewed with Google Fiber. By the way, like, it wasn't just that I had a manager who, like, wasn't into me, but, like, I sat, I sat in front of Vic and Dotra's office in a glass office. I actually gave a talk about this at IDEO, and, like, there's an article on the internet, and my advice is only stay if they love you, like, the point of this talk, because uh, Vic never said a word to me. The whole time I was there, I was at Google for eight months and I sat in front of his office for almost the entirety of it. And he could see my computer. He knew who I was. He knew what I worked on. He knew what I was doing. I like came up with a redesign for his product, you know, like he was responsible for it. And it was, of course, my manager who like pitched the whole thing to him. Right. I never had exposure to him. And, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that's his fault, but he not he, he not like never once stopped by my, by my desk that he would pass like 20 times a day. To, like, say hello or shake my hand or, like, say thank you for spending, like, nights here working on my thing that I'm responsible for. Not once. And so I was like, well, what am I doing? You know, like, I, I like to work with people who are appreciative and care that you're there. Because I do the same for the people I work with. Um, like, I make sure that my team knows damn well that they're appreciated and that they're doing a good job. So I interviewed with the fiber team and... When I went there and checked out this product that, you know, the thing hadn't even been talked about or announced or anything like that. Nobody, nobody knew about it. It was just like, you know, this sort of fictional like, like TV thing that Google was working on. But uh, this team of like a handful of engineers had built this like incredible looking guide, you know, for TV. And I was blown away. I was like, this, this is gorgeous. This is gorgeous. Like, I want to be on this team. <laughs> like, this is the team I want to be on. Um, and they had like one like PMM and like a handful of engineers and uh, somebody else who was leading it. I interviewed with, with them and they were going to invite me to the team. And I got an email from the head of product at Dropbox um, like the day after I interviewed with them. And I was like, well, you know, I could stay at Google, but like Dropbox, you know, like the thing that I remember Dropbox for was that like original video that went viral. That was hilarious that like that Drew Houston put together, you know and using it right? mm -hmm. <laughs> like it was it was pivotal to my workflow and still is you know and so I was like what am I you know what am I doing working at Google where I feel unappreciated and you know unappreciated and I couldn't be working on something that like I use every day like I don't use Google plus like who uses Google? nobody uses Google plus funny thing is I was working with a couple other designers I had been asked to sort of join this kind of ragtag team of designers that were at Google. It was uh, Shampori Rith, um, mm -hmm. who works on Mixmax now, yep. um, and uh, Nicholas Jitkoff, who did Quicksilver, that was bought by Google, works on Chrome now. Unbelievable dude. Uh, no Eleven, uh, mm -hmm. I'm sure you guys know. Um, there might have been one or two other guys, but. Shampori had this idea to, well, he had sort of heard from like other teams that um, they couldn't build an iOS app because they didn't have the design resources for it. And he was like, well, we could design like common components and we could spend some time, a little bit of time, like, you know, go in a war room and spend a little time building these things. And then there's not really like any excuses, right? Like you have all the components available to you um, and you can build it. And so we spent a little bit of time sort of working on a few things on our own, um, like some spinners and some headers and all sorts of different sort of common uh, common UI bits. And then we all went to New York, uh, to the Google New York office, uh, to meet up with uh, the handful of engineers who were going to build this stuff. I had actually already interviewed with Dropbox, and it went really well. Loved everybody that I talked to. And so we're like sitting in this room. It's like four or five of us, plus like four or five uh, uh, engineers. Um, and the guys actually worked on Drive. They worked on, on Google Drive. And uh, I was, of course, using Dropbox, even at Google. And, like, they told us not to, but why was I going to use Google Drive? Like, it sucked, right? I use Google Drive. Why? That's fine. That's <laughs> fine. No judgment. And I Maybe use Maybe a little Dropbox. bit of judgment. I use Dropbox and Google Drive. I mean, I use Drive, too, because I use Docs constantly. Hmm. But I don't necessarily, like, use the Drive part. But to yeah. each his own. To each, to his, each own. his own. Yeah. Hey. Yeah, no judgment here. Thanks. Um, so, yeah, we're sitting in this room, and uh, all the designers had sort of things to look at. So we're, you know, sharing the things that we made. And, you know, I have my Dropbox link that I've shared in a doc or whatever, and everyone else has their Drive links because everyone's using Drive. 
And then I was asked to use Drive, you know, instead of Dropbox. They're like, well, you know, they started ragging on me, like, you know, what are you using Dropbox for? You should be using Drive. And, and so I was like, all right, yeah, of course. You know, you guys work on it, right? Like, of course, I'll use Drive. All right. And so uh, I installed it <laughs> and went to put my files in and I checked the clock because the biggest thing about Dropbox was how quickly it synced all of your stuff. And, you know, long story short, my, my files disappeared at one point. Oh, shit. And I had to, like, go back to Dropbox, uh, <laughs> download them, and, uh, like, restore them, and then re-download them. Because Google, it just shit the bed. And it took me 13 minutes. It took me 13 minutes to share this stuff with them, excluding the sort of upload time. It was ridiculous. It was horrible. And it was, like, um, really awkward because they were working on it. The next day, similar meeting using Drive. It was all worked out. Uh, I got a call with an offer um, from Dropbox. Uh, I, uh... I took the offer. Was that a, a tough decision or had you already kind of made it up in your head? It wasn't a tough decision at all. You know, I had already decided that uh, if I didn't get the job with Dropbox, that I was just going to go work on Fiber. Minnie Ingersoll, who's one of my co-founders at Shift, was the one that was driving Fiber. She was the one who, like, was responsible for Fiber. So I actually would have worked for her if I would have joined that team, which is kind of interesting. But yeah, so I joined Dropbox. And in that talk that I mentioned I gave about leaving Google and joining Dropbox, uh, there's this anecdote that I mentioned. Um, and it revolves around Vic never saying a word to me. Two months into Dropbox, you know, we would have these like whiskey Fridays, right? Where we would just invite people they over still have to, them. to just hang out. Yeah. Um, it's a recruiting thing, you know, so you can sort of get a sense for the office and, and the team and, and whatnot. Rush doesn't really, uh, he doesn't really drink or anything like that anymore, but he had a champagne glass in hand and... Uh, just out of nowhere, he like comes up to me and like gives me a big hug. I mean, he's he's he, you know he's not a big guy, but he gives me a hug. Um, and he's like, Morgan, I'm like, I'm so happy you're here. I love you, man. Um, and it was just like such a stark difference, right? Like he's, mm-hmm. I mean, he's the co- he's a co-founder of Dropbox. I was like the 120th employee. Like, there's you know over 100 people working for him. Like, doesn't have to say that to any individual, right? So it was like just a stark contrast for me. I was there for two and a quarter years and did a ton of different things, worked on every different thing I could possibly get my hands on. (laughs) Like, I love that anecdote. And I was wondering if there are things like that, that now you've taken to shift and things that you think about as, as a co-founder, as a designer, and you're building your team, how do you like create that environment that you wanted so bad? Well, I mean, a lot of it, revolves around listening right like being there for the people on your team and listening to them if someone is having a really tough time on something it's like i feel like it's my duty to help them through it right it absolutely is my job to to help them through that um and do whatever i can you know to make them successful it's it's really important to me like it's management 101 essentially and this kind of circles back to what you brought up earlier in the conversation, like how is, how is design important to a company? And it was more specific about shift, but design is important to every company. And it's because design thinks about the details, right? I mean, design details, oh shit. How cliche is that? Thank Ding. you. Oh Woo. God. No, but um, we really do, right? We care about like exactly how a person is experiencing whatever it is. So the things that are really important to me at a company, you know, in building a company um, and as a co-founder is like, what, what is the recruiting experience? What is the hiring experience? What is the employee onboarding experience? And what is the experience of working at this company? It doesn't even get into sort of like, what are our design philosophies and what are our design practices and how do we work with each other, right? It's not even like, it doesn't even get into that yet, right? It's like still like super important stuff uh, that shouldn't be sort of left to the wayside. I don't know if there's any like practical tips or things that you have found that work really well, even in those processes, like new onboarding, uh, the recruiting process, things you've found that have been super effective for what you're trying to accomplish. It all revolves around like being decent human beings to each other, essentially. Um, like not letting a candidate like roam the halls, right? Like always having like a recruiting coordinator, like, you know, chaperone a candidate through the interview process. Um, it's always having like, you know, people interviewing new hires that are grounded in what the company expects out of people, right? Like they're, they're essentially calibrated for what we're looking for, which is 
you know, decent hearted, hardworking, talented people. And then also like all the nuance to it, right? Like we want to hire a team of diverse individuals. Like our design team, our first two members, myself and Mark are both bald white guys with glasses, right? Like early on, I made sure that like we didn't continue to hire bald white guys <laughs> who wear glasses. That um, would be a funny lineup though. Yeah. So I think that's also really important um, is that, uh, you know, just every, every detail, <laughs> every detail of the hiring process um, is important for sure. So do you still get to dig in and do IC work? Yeah, all the time. Um, the last thing I did is uh, in the app store right now. Um, we just shipped a, an app that lets you sell your car with Shift. Uh, last week, I designed a design recruiting page, uh, which will go up maybe next week. Um, it's not entirely necessary, but yeah. But you did it. I did it. Yeah, it's more of a it's more of a long term long term play. So you mentioned one of the things that you look for in candidates is people that just ship a lot, uh, mm-hmm. get things done. Mm-hmm. How much do you weigh craft, if you want to call it that, into the equation? Like, is it is it enough to just ship a lot of things or are you going all the way down into the fine details of the craft of what they're doing? For example, the, the guy who spent two days getting this animation just right. Um, the guy. That was Andy, Andy Hertzfeld. Hertzfeld. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, care deeply, deeply about that, right? That's like, a, it's a requisite. The quality has to be there. Um, the craftsmanship ha- has to be there. In, in fact, it's boiled into our process as a design team. Uh, we, have, we critique each other's work three times uh, a week. Uh, 4 p.m. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we all sit together at a table with a 4K television in front of us, and we 4K put our, only. We put our work in front of it. Well, it was refurb. It's a Vizio refurb, so hey, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not trying to be uppity here. It was a, you know, it was, cheap. it was under a thousand dollars. Okay, but, okay. So, um, no, but we 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 put our work up in front of each other, and uh, we punch holes in it, and um, it works really well because we all have you know, respect and admiration for each other. Um, and so we collectively make each other's work much greater than it would be if it was just us sitting alone. And so that's definitely the time where, you know, these rocks get polished into diamonds. And the, the quality is extremely important. One thing that I've had to um, definitely balance a lot being a, like, you know, starting at a very, very early stage startup, like from scratch, is that balance of quality and speed. So if you look at like driveshift.com, it's super minimal. There's not a lot of ornamentation or, you know, craziness going on. It's as minimal as possible. That way we can, you know, not only were we able to get it out very quickly, but we can also iterate on it very quickly. To answer your question, quality is really important, Um, but speed is also really important. There's people that... I don't know if you've experienced this as well, Bryn, that say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a really good product thinker or a UX thinker, but I struggle with the visuals. What would be your advice to someone like that? Because it sounds like maybe they are, are not at the level where you would bring them on at shift if they can't execute the, on the visuals. That's true. What would be your advice? Because I get asked this all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I know UX. I feel like I understand product thinking. I just have trouble getting the pixels to, to fall into place. My current thinking is design is simply taste. It's, it's expressing and maintaining and cultivating taste. And if something works very, very well, but looks like shit, someone is going to subconsciously decide that this thing is not tasteful. And that tastefulness is what we as designers, you know, call the value add, right? It's like, this value that we're adding to this thing is the quality. Design is a lot, has a lot to do with taste. And if you have great taste, but you're a designer who needs to execute, you have to be able to execute that taste, right? You, you can have great taste and not be a designer and still do things in product development. Like, I mean, I, I hate to be cliche again, but like Steve Jobs wasn't a designer right? He's had impeccable taste and he was also able to speak about it. And he was also, you know, able to articulate his thoughts, um, around that taste. So, I mean, that's just sort of one aspect uh, that I'm thinking about at the moment in terms of design. I believe what we do is a, you know, 
sort of product development is almost a Venn diagram of engineering and design. And in the center where they overlap is critical thinking and problem solving. And design has, you know, very specific disciplines related to it. And engineering has very specific um, uh, disciplines related to it as well. And, you know, essentially the fundamentals of art, which have a major overlap with fundamentals of design, is a major discipline underneath that or in that circle of design on that Venn diagram. If you want to be executing at the highest level and being able to ship extremely high quality products very quickly, uh, you sort of have to be able to intuitively know what looks good and what works well and what doesn't. When I said, you know, I learned from experience, a lot of this is like this massive rule book that I've just collected by doing things, right? So like, don't do this because I've done that before and I know it sucks. Um, That's essentially the rule book, right? It's like all these don'ts that I've made mistakes on and realized that they don't work. And that's another way that I describe design as well. And product development is like every product is a series of plan Bs, essentially. Um, Every final product. And design is exactly that, right? Like we make this invisible rule book by making mistakes constantly and then using our taste, deciding what is right and what is not. And that, of course, just like any theory in science or whatever, could be blown out of the water by new data, right? <laughs> new evidence. Um, you could feel really strongly about like drop caps, but then like a year later, feel like they're the worst thing ever, right? You know, design is many, many different disciplines. And I think that if you're trying to be the strongest designer that you can be, you should, you know, try to be very proficient, if not master as many as you can, right? And there's all sorts of buzzwords to describe these things, right? Like interaction design, IXD, right? Like, I mean, come on. Um, there's, uh, you know, the visual design, which is to me just like, it's just the, like I said, you know, four or five times already, the fundamentals of design mm-hmm. is, is visual design. Mm-hmm. And there's like information hierarchy and just general usability. There's like all these words you could throw out that are sort of nuanced and describe different types of disciplines underneath the um, umbrella of design. But they're all, they're all important, right? Uh, it's what it's like we used to call ourselves UX designers until that became a term for somebody who doesn't have any artistic ability or like who works in <laughs> keynote or balsamic for yep. most, most of their time. Wireframers. But the promise of that title was we design the experience, every aspect of it, which is why it's kind of, you know, it's kind of been a lie, right? Because most UX designers are, you know, in, in wireframe land which is not the entire experience, right? Like the right. entire experience is like... That doesn't, exactly. even, that doesn't even start the whole experience. Right. I mean, in most cases, the experience is like starting actually at marketing, mm-hmm. right? Like you actually hearing about a product and then you you download it from Apple's App Store or something. And now like it's the onboarding and now it's every, every other aspect of whatever product it is. Uh, I don't know, it's, yeah, I, I just in a really roundabout way described experience and missed a lot of things too. So I don't know. the definition of design, I think is just a constantly evolving thing, right? Like it didn't used to matter if you didn't have a CS degree, right? Now like really matters and it will matter more and more and more going forward, which is just an example of how design is constantly evolving. But, um, yeah. Sweet. Well, perfect. That's we're, actually all the time we have. So time. cool. Anything you want to plug before you go? I'm going to plug my uh, private Facebook. It's private. Yeah, so. so don't add you as a friend. So yeah, good luck. Throw that out there. <laughs> Sweet. Well, thanks for joining us. Yeah, Appreciate it. Thanks for having thanks, me, guys. Appreciate it. That was it. Episode 72. We hope you enjoyed listening. If you did, hit us up on Twitter. We're at Design Details FM. Or join our Slack team. 1,500 designers and developers are in there chatting every day about what's going on in the world. That's at spec.fm slash slack. And of course, check out our other shows on the Spec Network at spec.fm. Before we go, huge thank you once again to our two sponsors that made this episode possible. Icon Finder, back again with the largest source of icons on the web. Over 650,000 icons in their library available for commercial projects. You can use them if you're a freelancer, if you are working at a big company, personal projects. They are an amazing resource. Go to iconfinder.com, sign up for iconfinder pro and use the promo code design details. That'll tell them that we sent you and get you 50% off your first month. 
Thank you once again to Icon Finder. Our second sponsor, once again, we just want to thank Dropbox for making the show possible over and over and over again. We couldn't do without them. They're one of the best tools out there for people who are working in design or tech or whatever. They're fantastic for keeping all your files backed up, synced across devices, across people. Can't thank them enough. Go check them out at dropbox.com. Thank you once again to Dropbox, and we'll see you on Wednesday with Katie Dill.